Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we chatted biohacking, learned about wartime poetry, and discussed changes at one of our city's most venerable publishers. All this plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? Only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for August 23, 2019. I-94 chatted with author Rachel Galvin about her work on wartime poetry. Galvin discussed her nonfiction work, News of War, and her own book of poetry, Elevated Threat Level, before a live studio audience at the Dial. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, I wanted to start off, uh, as Jeremy mentioned, actually, you, you do have a number of books out, including this book in translation. Most of your work revolves around the poetry of war, conflict, and civilian... I don't want to say reactions to it, but maybe the reaction of being a civilian who writes about war. Uh, And it's an interesting space, especially considering the fact that we are kind of caught in a perpetual war here in America. Uh, And you you discuss in a number of notes in Elevated Threat Level that some of these poems came after uh, 9-11, which was obviously a traumatic uh, experience for Americans. Can you tell us a little bit about why you focused on this as a subject for your poetry to begin Mm -hmm. with? Yeah, you know, in some ways, it was the only subject for me to write about. It seemed inevitable. Um, I felt that um, our lives were completely influenced by and pervaded by the experience of being a nation constantly at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. It became normalized. And so I was sort of seeing everything through that filter and struggling with this problem of how to write as a civilian writer Um, concerned about those wars, concerned about my complicity as a citizen uh, in our nation's actions, but being very removed from it in many ways. And so that was the set of problems that really pushed me to write these poems and to try to work through those issues in different ways. Um, And it's something that continues to compel me and impel me. I was watching an old Russian movie last night called The Cranes Are Flying, and it's about... It's like an allegory for Mother Russia after World War One, and I was thinking about um, your work while I was watching it because mm-hmm. the whole country was involved in the war. Like everyone lined up at the train station, you know, the men marched off to war. You know, the and and here it's a very, um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, interaction with the mm-hmm. people, the people of this country. Uh, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm kids from small towns and things like that but uh we haven't had a war where you know we're all involved and i think with when you're distant when Mm -hmm. you distance yourself from the conflict like that it becomes very easy to um not think about it or write it off yeah it's like part of the background noise right yeah i worked with a lot of younger kids who this was probably three four years ago they were in their early 20s at the time and and the the young men would they would talk about how they were bored a lot and also talk about how it would be cool if war came stateside because it would be like an adventure sounds like some real bright guys you work with over yeah. there oh park baby <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but they acted like there wasn't a war already going on right. one to begin with right and as if, you know, I mean, in some ways we have the luxury in this country to have that distance. We have the wealth. We have this, like, bubble of safety to think that things are distant when actually if you look at sort of the economics of it, you can never separate the war industry out from the rest of our daily lives. But it does take a, di- you know, like a deep dive into economics and, and history and politics besides the, you know, this polarized world that we live in, it, right mm-hmm. and left, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, to look at the... the economic effects the i mean these men coming men and women that are coming back um with a lot of issues um i have a nephew that's a a a vet from afghanistan why can i have some friends and these uh these people are coming back with a lot of problems and Mm -hmm. um one of the things i always talk about you know vietnam when you were drafted for vietnam you did one tour some of these guys you know with the stop loss two three my nephew did four tours you know that's uh, my other nephew, oh, okay. yeah, my stepbrother's kid, mm-hmm. and um, you know that's too much. Yeah. That's too much yeah. for a, a eighteen, nineteen year old kid. I was in the Middle East for a year, and that was too much. You know, and I can't imagine like mm-hmm. what it would be like to go, you know, be there a year and then have you're not going home quite yet. We're going to tack on yeah. another year, um, and that whole stop loss thing. I think we're going to have a whole 
well, it's only 1% of the population that serve, but I think we're going to have a large uh, group of people that are really psychologically damaged, um, and we're starting to see the effects of that now. Uh, did you spend any time in war zones overseas? No, I haven't. Okay. Did, did you seek that out at all? Did you think about it? Did you? Well, I was writing the book. Yeah. No. I, you know, and I wrote these two books at the same time, pretty much. The, the work of news criticism, of news of war, and then elevated threat level. They sort of were braided together. As a, No, I was writing about uh, poets in the 30s and 40s, thinking about the Spanish Civil War and World War II, and some of these same questions, as a way to kind of look at historical precedents for ways that writers today might write about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I was kind of looking for... Um, modes of writing and modes of thinking that might be models. And a lot of them kind of worked their way into the poems that I was writing. I can see that now. It I took me a while to recognize that, that they were so imb imbricated. I saw in uh, your interview with the uh, LA Review of Books, yeah. uh, you, you mentioned Auden. Yeah. When, when did W.H. Auden write primarily? Because you, you mentioned in that interview that yeah. he... Uh, he had the same issue that the the, yeah. the yeah, preceding generation. So right. Player. Although I have a funny story about him. He ended oh, up. Oh, I love funny stories. <laughs> 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 <That's a laughs> <crowd pleasure. laughs> I have lots of stories about Johnny, but one in particular. So he wrote pretty much from the late 20s, like 27, 28, through the early 60s. Um, and you know, he was of the generation he worshipped Wilfred Owen. Wilfred Owen and some of these other poets in World War One who were considered trench poets because they were literally writing poems while they were in the trenches fighting. Owen in died World in World War One. He did. He I'm did, a yeah. big fan of the World War One poets too. Yeah. yeah they're, they're pretty stark. <laughs> oh my God, so good. Yeah. And so Auden, next generation, just young enough not to have participated, and he and his friends felt like they missed out, like they had missed their chance to experience the defining moment of their generation and to have something to write about. So this kind of haunted him, and he struggled with it. And I think he did, he wrote all kinds of interesting work out of that struggle. But the funny story is that, um, so he did things like he was sent off to cover the Sino-Japanese War um, with Christopher Isherwood in uh, 1939 and wrote a very funny kind of campy book that's like a travelogue about that. Because he was with Chris Isherwood. Chris Christopher Isherwood, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Where they basically are trying to prove through the whole thing that they're like the least equipped people to be doing this and to be, you know, acting as war reporters. So he wrote that, he wrote some other things. But then the funny story is that uh, after the war, he had immigrated to America in 39. He was born in England, um, came in 39, um, and he was asked by the US military, and I can't figure out how anyone came upon the idea of calling him up to do this, but they made him a major, and they flew him over to Germany to collect oral histories um, uh, about people's experiences of being bombed by the US military. So he was part of the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey and, oh, wow. yeah, and collected reams of material. And he had a contract to publish a book about it. And when he came back, he just scrapped it. It was like, I can't write about this. It was terrible. It was horrible. Um, oh, it was never published? No. It was in his He wrote archives? like a couple poems, but it's really very little. Yeah. Did you find all this stuff in his archives or something? Um, no, I wasn't able to see that material. Um, but James Stern, who he was supposed to collaborate with, did publish some of it. So you can, you can read that and access it. So, you know, he kind of quipped that he was the first major poet to fly across the Atlantic since they'd made him a major. And, you know. I, I wonder if they chose him because of the mass observation work that was going on in England at the time. That was actually something I wanted to bring up, but later. Mm. So if we could, let's put a pin in that and come back to it. Because... One of the things that struck me about your book, and I, I'm wondering if the two guys with me had the same reaction. I grew up in a different country. I, I grew up actually in Scotland, and my okay. family um, are all military until pretty much my generation, mm -hmm. my father's generation. Um, grandfather fought in, great-grandfather, great, real-grandfather fought in World War I. Uh, my uncles fought in World War II, mm -hmm. and my family emigrated over here by signing to fight in Vietnam. Okay. So Scotland was not exactly a fun place at the time. Uh, kind of the sick man of Europe at that point. One of the things that struck me reading kind of between the lines of the poems was the separation of the American civilian from the military mm -hmm. and the celebration of militarism, which does not exist mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Scotland, uh, Germany, France. Mm -hmm. There's a real suspicion of overweening patriotism 
um, some of the displays that we see on uh, a baseball diamond would be considered proto-Nazi where I come from. And I, wa- I got the sense that that was kind of what you were getting at, but I mm-hmm. didn't know if that was my own experience kind of impressing on that. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered if you could speak a little bit yeah. to that, because that was my reaction to some of the work. And I know, you know, Jeremy and Mike might have a, a completely different reaction than I am just because of my background. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely, I think you're picking up on something that I was trying to work through in the book and to think about, um, you know, in terms of, and this sort of gets back to your question, too, about my own experiences. I have not lived in a war zone, but both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. They didn't know each other, they, but they ended up in the same battalion, which is kind of strange. Um, they were both wounded have relatives who served in the military. So it's something that's sort of present for me in, a, in an immediate way. Um, but And so there's a poem, uh, one of the last poems in the book, it's a sonnet um, called After the War, is actually for my grandfather who just passed away two years ago, where I was kind of trying to think about um, his experiences in the war and what that, what that means for me as part of our family history and, and part of my own way of thinking about my relationship to wars today as well. Um, but it's a complicated thing. It's muddled. It's fraught. Um, I don't think there's a clear answer. And you're quite right to say that there's a very complicated relationship in the U.S. Um, between citizens and the military. It's very different from the Vietnam when anyone could be drafted and forced to go to war, right? And so today... Uh, the demographics of people who go to war are, 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 are different from Vietnam when it was everybody. Everyone was kind of um, subject to that. In some ways, but also, yeah. you know, if you were in college, you didn't go to war. Right. So that's why a lot of vets hate hippies because they were like these mid- upper middle class kids that didn't have to right. fight the war. And then they were protesting the war that these poor kids had to go fight. Yeah. <laughs> Melanie Adcock spoke with Dr. Andy Scarpelli, the founder of Chi-Town Bio, about biohacking, genetic disorders, and how biology interacts with art, politics, and cultural trends. Texting Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1. thought we could um, get started with an introduction to Chi-Town Bio. Um, who founded it? Where, where is it? And, and what's your mission? Uh, sure. Thanks. Um, so Chi-Town Bio is attempting to be Chicago's first public biolab. Mm. Uh, so uh, I should probably break that down, too. Uh, yeah. Public biolab is a space that's uh, provided uh, by usually nonprofits around the country that just allows people to come in and get their hands wet on biotechnology. So mm. come in and try your hand at uh looking at the parts of DNA sequencing that people aren't really completely familiar with the details of or all the things you see on CSI where they send it to the lab and just be able mm-hmm. to look at what that actually means. Um, mm. And we're, we're really excited to try to start that. And who we are, who the, the founders of this were, were a bunch of people who uh, got together basically through just some mutual acquaintances at, uh, at Northwestern uh, mm-hmm. University just – um, there were just a bunch of people there who were interested in this, and we kind of learned about each other through our network and just running into each other randomly, and we just said, let's do this. And it's it's been a dream of mine for years. I learned about this in grad school at a conference in California probably way longer ago than I'd like to admit mm-hmm. um, that these spaces exist, and it's a shame that Chicago doesn't have one, and we yeah. really want to do it here. Mm-hmm. Um and so we've been at it for uh, planning and everything for about two years now. And mm-hmm. so we're, we're getting ready to make that jump and actually build a space. Ooh. Well, and we're, we're so we're so glad you're here to talk about this because it, it, it's an interesting stage where you are mm-hmm. with, with this organization, how you're building it and what you hope to do and what you're doing. Um, so, so many interesting things to talk about. And I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about, <laughs> a lot of really interesting questions. But I, I'd like to kind of start, Andy, with what is biotech anyway? You know, the, for the non-technical person, yeah. they're hearing this going, oh, OK, well, what is that? So c- can you tell us what, what is biotech and how is it different th- from other areas of technology? So I am uh, an instructor at the School of the Art Institute, mm-hmm. and I uh, teach a class uh, called BioArt, and uh, which we'll probably talk about later. But it's mm-hmm. the combination of art and biology, and um, I co-taught it with a designer or a t- uh, uh, an artist for a while. And I remember explaining to him like, "You have to be very careful, just because biology is something that is a lot more meaningful to individuals. And so, if you really want to push boundaries and be uh, uh, 
kind of edgy with uh, technology, that's something that people are usually comfortable with. But biology is very personal. Mm. Uh, and so biology is there's that horrible definition of biology is the study of life. And I think that's so horrible just because we have no good definition of what life is, um, oh. which is troubling to think about. But uh, I but um, I think combining technology and, and life is just such a strange forefront just because there is, first of all, a lot more ethics involved whenever you're dealing with something that's alive. So biotechnology has an added layer compared to um, if you were to talk about technology with electronics or with chemistry, you're dealing with something that's alive. So that's already getting into an uncomfortable space just because, all right, if you electrocute, if you electrocute a bacteria, are we okay mm-hmm. with that? If we electrocute a fungus, are we okay with that? If we electrocute a plant, are you okay with that? If you electrocute a insect, are you okay with that? Are you, if you do that to a mouse, are you okay with that? And there's always going to be a different point where people draw that line. Mm-hmm. Um, there are going to be people from the get-go who say, no, electrocuting anything that's alive is a horrible idea. Why are you doing that? And it might be because if we do, there are bacteria who actually feed on electricity, who can actually help us generate electricity. What do we know about those? How can we play with those? And so bio, I think I've gotten really off topic here. But No, no, it's just good. There's there's a lot to think about when we yeah. ask, you know, and, and it's I ask a lot of basic questions mm-hmm. like this, too, like, uh, you know, what is what is financial technology? Yeah. What is Bitcoin? Uh, it's either the easiest question or the hardest yeah. question. And this when we I think you're right when we ask what is life mm-hmm. i mean goodness gracious um there there's quite a lot to unpack there so you're you're keep keep going and keep that, going well, <laughs> what else do you it's have so to tricky say? about that too just cuz that's half of the question too like what's biotechnology that's life is first half and then technology is that second half and what what do we mean by that because mm-hmm. so much of early biotechnology cuz biotechnology is something that's been around as long as civilization has if we planted a seed We've picked that seed. Um, we've regrown it. We've cultivated it. So agriculture is a great example of biotechnology because mm-hmm. it's it's us using life as a tool. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the the small. The, I think the most basic definition that we can use for a biotechnology. Mm-hmm. And so um, biotechnology is another difference between that and everything else. Uh, every other technology is that it's essential. Biotechnology is something that you can avoid because you could live without your computer. You could. I don't know if you'd want to, but you could do it. Um, you might want to. There's, it would yeah. be pretty tough, <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but you can't live without food. And so um, agriculture, uh, brewing, uh, uh, fermentation, all these technologies – are something that are going to be very intimate to your life. They're going to be very intimate to your everyday life, to everything that you do. Um, when you ask someone, oh, what did you have for breakfast today? There's probably a bunch of technologies in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they mm-hmm. had yogurt, there was fermentation. If they had um, a, a bagel, they probably had a bunch of different strains of uh, wheat that had have gone into that that have been through years of selective breeding. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you had eggs... Uh, what happened to that chicken? Did we use hormones on it? Did we uh, change its environment? Were there antibiotics used in it? What do those antibiotics have in terms of our fears? What do they have to do with our fears of the spread of antibiotic resistance? Mm -hmm. Is the fact that you had eggs this morning going to make it harder for someone in the hospital to get over their next uh, bacterial infection? There Mm -hmm. are all these things about biotechnology that are so tricky is just that Trying to predict life is also very hard. I try not to, but I think that you can overuse that stupid gif of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park saying, like, life uh, finds a way. Just because anytime you do play around with biology, there's – I do a horrible mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum impression, apparently. Um, but um, there's that – we are trying to modify life, and life is going to do its own thing as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't think – there is as big of a fear if you're building uh, a small circuit that the circuit will fight back. If you're building a genetic circuit in the bacteria or in a plant, they're going to fight back a little bit, which is 
a whole other aspect. And once again, I think I've gotten really far from your original question. There's, there's a lot we could talk about. You know, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here thinking about, well, is a virus alive? You know, there are a lot of questions That's like that. And, actually, and then, and then coming up with yeah. technology surrounding it. What about the ethics surrounding AI, which mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit in previous episodes on our show about that. And, you know, is... Uh, What's the ethics of turning off a, a machine that believes it's conscious? You know, I mean, there are so many things we could go on and yeah. on. And, and, um, and, and, I, and I think uh, a lot of people who maybe aren't, inter- you know, aren't in the tech world uh, kind of wonder, well, what's meant by biotech? And I think it's, I think it's a, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, there's a lot of things people can get into and, and uh, be interested in. And, and so now, now how, how do you think individuals benefit from understanding some of the basics of biology and biotech and things like that? Um, I think that this gets tricky just because we run into biology so many times in our everyday life that knowing a little bit about it becomes, we all know a little bit about it. Um, When we talk about where does our food come from, we can do that basics of like, well, it comes from a farm. And Mm -hmm. you'll always run into that person who's like, well, I like chicken nuggets because they don't look like the chicken meat itself or something like that, where there are people who are trying to stay ignorant of it. But we run into it more than just our food. That's the easy one. But we, it comes to health. It comes to identity. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes uh, from running into um, the world around us and the effects that we have on it. When we talk about endangered species, when we talk about climate change, when we talk about um, uh chemical pollutants and dumping, uh, those are affecting the world around us that the living things that are going to affect uh, agriculture and society. And so they're going to, it's how life is going to affect us as much as how much we're going to affect life. And so I think that every decision that we make has an implication on the world around us. Uh, That's maybe just a personal opinion, but I, I think that it does have that effect. And so understanding life and biotechnology is kind of how that decision will boomerang a bit, how those implications will affect other organisms. And so when you get up in the morning um, and you decide on your breakfast, knowing a little bit about biochemistry might help you figure out the nutrition of it so that you're not being a little wasteful with the resources mm-hmm. that you use. Um, and so I'm once again getting really off topic, no, I think. No, no but, it's, it's good. Um, I mean, well, if you raise a chicken yourself, that brings up a whole other set yeah. of implications, whether you're you're outsourcing, raising and feeding and caring for this chicken. Um, you know, I mean, it's it, they're all, all different types of um, questions that come up I, when someone's eating their breakfast. I agree. And, and this is about how it impacts everyone's daily life. And there's there's even more aspects of it, too, because you've made a bunch of decisions on biotechnology today that you might not have known about. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to some of my students about this shift in polling from Florida around the time that the Zika virus came out. Mm. Um, because before Zika, there is a way to engineer mosquitoes so that they can't really breed out in the wild. And so that they go out, they mate, they try to make all these mosquito babies, and they don't actually make their way to adulthood, which mosquito mm. babies is probably going to be one of the points where biologists who are listening to this will go like, he has no idea what he's talking about to call them that. But um, uh, mosquito babies out there, they don't make it to adulthood. Um, people were opposed to the release of GMO mosquitoes because we don't know what they're going to do, and that could be right. really scary. Mm-hmm. They had that polling from beforehand that majority was against it. Zika became a threat. Zika became a threat to uh, South Florida, and they were like, they took that polling again. Uh, and it turned out the majority was, yeah, release the mosquitoes. You mm-hmm. know, this technology might end up saving people's lives. Let's get it out of there. Cut down the mosquitoes. We don't want to risk human health. And so people, the FDA made decision about uh, releasing uh, GMO insects, and it's been done. Mm-hmm. If you agree or disagree with that, that's something that part of your elected officials have decided on. And so when there are these Mm. different decisions on genetically modified crops or which Mm -hmm. there was just uh, a approval for drought resistant uh, soybeans, I think it was soybeans or was it corn? Uh, Crops, Mm -hmm. let's Mm -hmm. say, uh, being on the market. That's decisions that you have been part of. You have helped elect officials if you vote in this country. You have bought products that you might not know are GMOs or that – Uh, Mm. you might not know the story of. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times 
people are excited to say, oh, well, this is a GMO, this is bad, or this isn't a GMO, so this is good. Welcome to another edition of News from the Service Entrance. I'm Mario Smith, and today I'm with the 19th declared candidate for the mayor of Chicago, Mr. Kyle Seismankowski. Kyle, may I call you Kyle? Of course, Mario. Kyle, you have an unusual platform for someone seeking the mayorship of this city. Your Undertown First platform is already being called one of the most controversial in the entire race. Some are saying you're sowing division in the city. No, 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 that's completely untrue, Mario. The fact is that for too long, Undertown has been ground under the heels of Chicagoans. In the that's case a of... fairly explosive statement, Mr. Seismikowski. No, it's true. Undertown is literally right under this very studio. You can get to it by going to the Copro's basement. Oh, I, I didn't know that. That's what my campaign is about. Education, vaccination, sedation. Still, I'm having a hard time squaring this with your call for a wall. Listen, Mario, as residents of Undertown understand, our retaining walls are collapsing. Bridgeport is pouring down upon us, and soon we'll be nothing more than a receptacle for empty wonton wrappers and aluminum. So your slogan, Build That Wall, is about saving Little Bill's house near Diaper Hill. But what about all the stuff about Hillary Clinton? I mean, her emails, that pants. Jess, where is he getting all this? Oh, what are you talking about? Kyle's wearing a tie. He's bathed. He's actually making sense. Usually the skit is a five-minute word salad. Well, shame on you, Jamie, for not being more supportive. Maybe he's turning over a new leaf, okay? Maybe Kyle's finally achieving his full potential. Maybe it's his new batch of lump and bubbles. Lump and bubbles? That... Toxic brew made out of laundry soap? This is my favorite bit. Are you trying to say you're the progressive candidate? I can completely progress. Every day I go from point A to point B, and like every other Chicagoan, I put one foot in front of the other, and my pants go on one leg at a time. Boom. Focus, tested, By whom? I wrote it on an eye chart of Provision. I gotta say, Mario looks pretty confused. That's a terrific start. The one thing I'm having difficulty with is your penchant for nicknames. Some people might think that referring to the other candidates by names such as Neil, Salesforce, Griffin, and Paul Walrus are demeaning to the process. But that's not Paul's name. Are you sure about that? Check your face. And your Arm the Kids rescue plan for the school system is simply bizarre. No, it's not. You're referring to my go-out-on-a-limb program. It's about keeping babies safe, Mario. I believe children should have access to arms. How else are they going to use monkey bars, what have you? Mr. Seismikowski, why do you even want to be mayor? That's a good question. First, I heard the job pays a salary, which is impressive, and there are many opportunities for me to make much, much more money. Such as? Well, there's wearing a wire, naming buildings. Uh, I heard about parking meters. Seriously, Jess, what's going on? I already told you, I don't know. Why are you always blaming me? No, with Kylie starting to spew bubbles out Oh, no, 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 no. Hang on, I, I gotta get in there. Is everything okay, Kyle? You you look a little flushed. Kyle, Kyle, hey, Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Here, just drink this up. Tasty lump and bubbles. Excuse me, who are you? I, I'm, I'm his campaign manager. Now, Kyle... Just drink it. Ah, the bubbles. What is in that stuff? Uh, nothing untoward. It's just a healthy cocktail no of more brain natural no brain-supporting seaweed and stuff. Oh, Tastes like ketamine and Tide. brain bubbles. Huh. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, they say when the you're starting side. out, you should just dose who you know. But you're right. I mean... I don't think I have the stomach for politics. And that apparently concludes a very bizarre interview with mayoral candidate Kyle Seismikowski. Mikhaila, he doesn't have a chance in hell. Actually, Seismikowski is already pulling more support than half the field. He's well above Lightfoot and Ballas and is making a serious run at Chico. And my phone is blowing up. How is that possible? People are looking for an outsider, even a hallucinating bum. Excuse me, Mario. I got to go talk to Mr. Seismikowski. Kyle, wait up. Is Kyle Seismankowski the future of Chicago? (laughs) 
This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump gets Israel to ban two American congresswomen. The blowback is fierce. Trump tells aides economists are biased against him as panic sets in over a looming recession. Trump tries to blame the left for mass shootings. And Trump wants to buy Greenland and then stuns Denmark by canceling a state visit when they tell him it's not for sale. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 938, August 15th. Israel barred the entry of two American Democratic Congresswomen who had planned to visit the West Bank, hours after Trump had urged the country to block them. Trump's recommendation that an allied nation deny entry to two United States citizens, let alone members of Congress, was one of the most pronounced violations of Democratic gnomes he's engaged in. Quote, it would show great weakness if Israel allowed Representative Omar and Representative Talib to visit, Trump tweeted, before Israel made an announcement. They hate Israel and all Jewish people, and there's nothing that can be said or done to change their minds. Minnesota and Michigan will have a hard time putting them back in office. They're a disgrace. Israel's decision to bar the two congresswomen was widely criticized, including by prominent Israeli supporters. One of the women, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, was later allowed in. She is a Palestinian. She, however, declined to go. Trump is increasingly using the powers of the presidency against his perceived enemies. He has grounded a military jet set for use by the Democratic House Speaker, yanked a security clearance from a CIA director critical of him, threatened to withhold disaster aids from states led by Democrats, pushed to reopen a criminal investigation targeting Hillary Clinton, and publicly called for federal action to punish technology and media companies he views as biased against him. United States government scientists confirmed that July was the hottest month on record, edging out the previous record holder of July 2016. The five hottest Julys have come in the past five years. Trump, however, has called global warming a Chinese hoax, and his EPA has moved to increase carbon dioxide allowances by loosening rules on older coal-powered plants. Trump told his fervent supporters at a rally that if he is not re-elected, the economy will crash. Quote, you have no choice but to vote for me because your 401k is down the tubes. Everything's going to be down the tubes, so whether you love me or hate me, you've got to vote for me. Trump also falsely accused the media of doing, quote, everything they can to crash the economy because they think that will be bad for me in my re-election. Trump told Confidence he distrusts statistics he sees reported in the news media, and he suspects many economists and other forecasters are presenting biased data toward his re-election. He's also told aides and allies that Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell will be his scapegoat if the economy goes south. Trump retweeted the musings of a criminologist who argued the United States is not experiencing an epidemic of mass shootings. In fact, at least four people have been killed in a mass shooting on average every 47 days since June 17, 2015. Day 939, August 16th. A study showed that Trump's Tax Cuts and Job Act, which Trump called the biggest reform of all time to the tax code, has not generated an increase in overall economic growth. Most economists believe the USA is tumbling towards recession due to Trump's trade war with China and slowdowns in Europe, particularly Germany. The stock market plunged as the yield on the 10-year Treasury note fell below that of the two-year Treasury note. That so-called inverted yield curve is considered one of the most reliable leading indicators of a recession. A leaked document showed the Republican strategy on gun violence is to describe mass shootings as, quote, violence from the left, while downplaying white supremacy. 73% of extremist-related murders are committed by right-wing fanatics and white supremacists in this country. None were carried out by the so-called left. Trump and his national security advisors are considering a deal with the Taliban for withdrawal of forces from Afghanistan. In exchange, the Taliban would have to agree to renounce al-Qaeda and prevent it from fundraising, recruiting, or training in areas under their control. An initial withdrawal would include roughly 5,000 of the 14,000 troops in Afghanistan and end America's longest military engagement abroad. And Trump called one of his own supporters fat at a rally. Quote, that guy's got serious weight problems. Go home, get some exercise. Frank Dawson was wearing a Trump 2020 shirt. Trump later called from Air Force One, but did not apologize for the insult. Day 940, August 17th. Trump bizarrely claimed that Google manipulated votes in the 2016 election. A Fox Business segment aired a psychologist claiming that, quote, biased search results generated by Google's search algorithm likely impacted undecided voters in a way that gave at least 2.6 million votes to Hillary Clinton, who I supported. The authors of the study did not describe their methodology or release their results for peer review. Google has no connection to American voting systems. Thousands of union workers in a shell plant in Pennsylvania were ordered to attend a Trump speech or lose some of their pay. The company stated that attendance was not mandatory, but only those who swiped in with their IDs and stood for hours waiting to hear Trump speak would be paid. No scan, no pay, said the memo, which also prohibited the workers from doing anything viewed as resistance during the event. 
A prison guard drove a truck and ice protesters outside a private prison. The officer was wearing a badge and a uniform while police officers to the protest refused to intervene. The driver of that truck eventually walked into the prison. Guards pepper sprayed the protesters. Day 941, August 18th. Trump falsely claimed he has the authority to make decisions about which TV networks can host the presidential debates during the general election. Trump also complained that Democrats had barred Fox News from hosting or televising the 2020 Democratic primary debates. Trump warned he could do the same to Fox News in the general election if the polls about his re-election chances coming out of that network don't change for the better. Quote, my worst polls have always been from Fox, and I think Fox is making a big stake because, you know, I'm the one that calls the shots on that on the really big debates. A recent Fox poll showed Trump losing head-to-head against a slew of declared Democratic candidates. Fox News polling is also highly respected in the industry. Reports continue to grow over the likelihood of a recession, so two senior economic advisors were trotted out to the Sunday shows to dispute those claims. Larry Kudlow, who is the director of the National Economic Council, and White House Trade Director Peter Navarro argued that Trump's tax cuts and trade war with China aren't harming Americans. In fact, consumer confidence has dropped 6.4% since July. Trump then told reporters, quote, I don't see a recession. And Trump has reportedly expressed interest in buying Greenland. That request has bewildered aides, some of whom think it isn't serious. However, Trump has mentioned it for weeks. Greenland is owned by Denmark. Some Republicans predictably supported what virtually everyone else thinks is a crazy idea. Quote, this idea isn't as crazy as the headline makes it seem, said a Wisconsin Republican, Mike Gallagher. This is a smart geopolitical move. The United States has a compelling strategic interest in Greenland, and this should absolutely be on the table. Greenland's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said the island is not for sale. Day 942, August 19th. Panic set in at the White House as it became apparent over the weekend the American economy is in fact slowing. Trump continued to harbor conspiracy theories telling aides over the weekend he believes economists are deliberately putting out false statistics to harm him. This is of course absurd. Trump then urged the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates by a full percentage point in a tweet. Trump said the central bank's chairman Jerome Powell has a horrendous lack of vision and again claimed that the U.S. economy is very strong. However, Trump is considering a temporary payroll tax cut to reverse the weakening economy and encourage consumer spending. Payroll tax cuts usually add to the deficit and take billions of dollars out of Social Security and Medicare. Planned Parenthood withdrew from Title X rather than comply with a new Trump administration rule that restricted what health providers can say about abortion. The move is likely to affect more than 1.5 million low-income women who rely on Planned Parenthood for services such as birth control, pregnancy testing, and screening for STDs. Planned Parenthood serves about 40% of the 4 million patients who use Title X. The Federal Election Commission chairwoman called Trump's repeated allegations of voter fraud false and damaging to our democracy. Trump asserted at a rally in New Hampshire that voter fraud is the reason he lost the state's four electoral votes. Eileen Weintraub said there is no evidence of rampant voter fraud in 2016 or really in any previous election. Trump has asked his aides to set up a naval blockade against the Venezuelan coastline to prevent goods coming in and out of that country. Senior Pentagon officials believe a naval blockade of the country is both impractical and illegal. The Navy is also already stretched thin in their attempts with incidents involving China and Iran. And Trump confirmed he is considering an attempt to buy Greenland, though he said the idea is, quote, not number one on the burner. Greenland's government again insisted it was not for sale. The Danish prime minister called any discussion of a sale absurd. It was reported in Denmark that they didn't know whether Trump was joking or serious. Day 943, August 20th. Trump withdrew his support for additional background gun checks and gun legislation in general after a single phone call with NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre. LaPierre reportedly told Trump that expanded background checks wouldn't sit well with his supporters. Trump said after the phone call he is very concerned about the Second Amendment and claims people don't realize we have very strong background checks right now. That is false. He then claimed Democrats want to take away the Second Amendment. That is also false. And checks are a very slippery slope. Attorney General William Barr fired the head of the Bureau of Prisons at the fallout from sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's death by suicide whilst in federal custody reverberated. Kathleen Hawk Sawyer, who previously served as the Bureau of Prisons Director from 1992 to 2003, will return to her post. An autopsy this weekend revealed Epstein hung himself. He was inexplicably left alone despite having attempted suicide before. 
Trump is reportedly irate that California and four major automakers have joined to oppose his rollback of auto emission standards. Toyota, Fiat, Chrysler, and General Motors were summoned to the White House last month and pressed to stand by Trump's rollbacks. Instead, one of those companies, Mercedes-Benz, are preparing to join the agreement, which has reportedly enraged Trump. The five automakers account for more than 40% of all cars sold in the United States. And Trump's new fuel emissions rules would actually end up costing consumers and automakers close to a half a billion dollars. New York, Connecticut, and Vermont sued to block Trump's public charge rule. The rule, which attempts to constrain legal immigration, would limit pathways to citizenship if an immigrant used things such as food stamps or public health insurance, including Obamacare or school lunches. Once labeled a public charge, immigrants would be denied green cards, visas, and other forms of legal immigration status. Trump tweeted a doctored photo showing a Trump Tower in Greenland. The photo shows a golden-clad Trump Tower looming over a small village in Greenland with the caption, quote, I promise not to do this to Greenland. Day 944, August 21st. Trump stunned Denmark by canceling a state visit, apparently in reaction to Prime Minister Meta Frederiksen's statement that Greenland is not for sale. Trump tweeted that Denmark was a very special country with incredible people, but announced he has decided to postpone the visit based on Prime Minister Meta Frederiksen's comments that she would have no interest in discussing the purchase of Greenland. Frederiksen was reportedly blindsided by the cancellation and issued a statement that called Trump erratic and indicated Denmark would then look to strengthen ties with the EU instead. Trump responded by telling reporters that she was nasty. Missed in much reporting over the Greenland fiasco that Trump was apparently looking for ways to pull out of the Danish visit for some time. Former President Barack Obama is to visit the nation in two weeks, and Trump was reportedly deeply concerned Obama would get a bigger reception than him. Trump said that any Jew who votes for a Democrat shows either a total lack of knowledge or a great disloyalty. That echoes a classic white supremacist and anti-Semitic smear that Jews have a dual loyalty and are more devoted to Israel than their own nation. Trump also tweeted conservative radio host and conspiracy theorist Wayne Allen Root, who claimed that Trump is the best president for Israel in the history of the world. The Jewish people in Israel love him like he's the king of Israel, but Jews in America don't even know what they're doing anymore. Trump proposed exiting a court decree known as the Flores Agreement. Flores forbids families to be held in detention beyond a 20-day limit. Trump and the Republican Party have repeatedly blamed that rule for encouraging migrants to arrive at the border with their children, expecting to be released. Instead, Trump now seeks to warehouse migrants indefinitely to serve as a deterrent against Mexican and Central American migrant families. America's federal deficit will expand by more than $800 billion, and that's more than previously expected, pushing the nation into further levels of debt that have been unseen since the end of World War II. America's federal deficit will expand by about $800 billion more than previously expected. That will push the nation into levels of debt unseen since the end of World War II. The Congressional Budget Office also warned of a looming recession and blamed Trump's tariffs on China. 65% of Americans now say the economy is good. That's a 5% drop from July. Trump's approval rating is now at 40%, down several points from last month. These are the Trump Diaries. Mario chatted with Parnesia Jones, the editorial director of the Northwestern University Press. Jones discussed the changes in the publisher's output, Northwestern's role in a community, and much more. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2. Parnesia Jones is the uh, editorial director of Northwestern University Press, and they have been knocking it out of the park lately. And the press has changed a bit, if you're familiar with Northwestern University Press. And, and, and one of the books that really is shepherding that change is Avery R. Young's new book, Neckbone. We're going to have Avery on the new show that we're putting together uh, next week, and he and I are going to talk a little bit more in depth about it. But... That being said, the editorial director for Northwestern University Press, Parnisha Jones, joins us on news from the service entrance the radio show. Good afternoon, ma'am. How are you? I'm all right. It's good to hear your voice again. It's good to hear your voice. It's always good to see you. I know it's uh, far and far between, so we'll have to correct that, but I'm just grateful you asked me to join you today. So hello to everybody. The least I could do. Um, when... When um, we were talking about what, what Northwestern University Press has done over the years um, and how it has been run, 
Um, it's a different different day with with you being in that spot. Um, my well, I mean, and and that's no disrespect to Reg Gibbons or any of those folks. It's just a different kind of vibe, right? Um, my experience with them is when I was with the Guild Complex, and they've always been a very interesting press, and they've always kind of been on the edge with the artists that they choose to publish. But you came in and changed the whole deal. Um, talk about that change and, and, and how that happened and what your vision was coming in and, and if that has you know been altered, good or bad or indifferent. You know, it's really interesting. I think that, you know, anytime I think um, uh, uh, a, per- a person of color, but specifically, even more specifically, as I identify as a black woman, comes into um, a situation or a game that usually is n- not as representative of us as it could be, um, I think that just by default, the narrative changes. I think that, you know... Reg Gibbons and a lot of the people that were attached to Tri-Quarterly Journal, which eventually became the Tri-Quarterly Books in Print, which is part of Northwestern University Press, you know, they did an incredible job, and I think they brought a lot of um, voices. You know, Reg was, you know, one of the key people who was instrumental in having us having Angela Jackson on the list and publishing the works of Sterling Brown. Um, but also, I think, in a wider scope of just us having a conversation with the wider world, outside of just being a university press. Um, I think a lot that when I came in, I kind of came in from the schooling of Third World Press, which was my first um, real experience in publishing and really having an idea that, oh, you know, black people can be published and do beautiful books and they can be in the mainstream. And so I never, it was never that I I didn't think that we couldn't have a grander stage. And so I just came in, you know, I was 22 years old when I started here, and this is now my 16th year working at the press. And so the first couple of years, I just, you know, stayed very quiet and learned everything I could learn about publishing. And I got exposed to a lot of different things about how to do it, how to keep people's um, stories and narratives safe, but also trying to just open up the spaces for people to know that this is a possibility, that your work can be archived, but it can also be something in the mainstream. So I started acquiring in 2010. Um, The first book I acquired ended up winning the National Book Award for Poetry. And from there, it just kind of took off. You know, I started with poetry, but now I'm moving into other areas. So I'm I'm excited about the possibility. When we talk about uh, artists of color and, and people in your position, particularly at the press, um, what is that seat like? Because you have a, first of all, anybody that has even a limited knowledge of, of what it's like to sit in a, in a room where you have an editorial board and you're the head of that and, and the, 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 the suggestions are flying and everybody's da, 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 da. Part of your job is to take into account the artist and to protect the integrity of, of their work and them, too. Um, is that seat... Now that this is going to sound real backwards, but is that seat different from your point of view as, a, as a, a black woman on this mighty board and with this press? I think that, you know, pretty much everything, every seat I occupy outside of being a black woman, hmm. there is a yin and a yang. There is the good and the bad, and I, I have never not been used to not um, having to defend certain things, but also making it very clear that um, my where I'm coming from, the people that I come from, the people that I represent, and it's not just black people, it's artists and cultural workers and people who want to put more into this planet than they take, um, I'm, I, I come from just the notion that I shouldn't have to defend it, but I'm prepared to do so, because that's just the way the world works. I think whether you're sitting in an editor's seat or whether you're sitting in a boardroom or whether you're sitting in the front of the classroom, you, you always have to, in some ways, defend um, when it comes to integrity. But 
sitting in this seat and, you know, just in thinking about it, I've been thinking a lot about this lately just because of the passing of Toni Morrison and the fact that she, um, you know, was one of the most brilliant black woman editors that we have in American literature. And she brought forth a lot of important voices that are still much in the conversation and in the mainstream. And I saw her documentary actually twice. I went and saw it with a friend of mine, and then I went back again to take notes, to sit in the theater by myself and take notes about some of the things that she said about being an editor. And it's always, you're going to always be as a black woman, but also as a black woman who knows what they want to see and what they want to see read in the world. You're always going to, um, you're going to always have to school people, I guess, to a certain point. And I have no problem doing that. I think what happens also is that I also have to school the artist as well. You know, this is a business. You know, art is a business. No matter how um, romanticized that we get about it or how creative we get about it or artistic we get about it, when you want it in front of the wider world, you do have to learn what that means. And so I try to, uh, I try to school both sides and I try to have a common ground. It doesn't always work, but for the most part, I think I've been, my batting average has been pretty good. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. I, w- I would say, you know, pretty good is an understatement. You're being nice to yourself. Um, the I, I'm, I'm going over our notes. This is stuff that people mm-hmm. aren't supposed to know, but I'm trying to, trying mm-hmm. to be very professional in the uh, <laughs> moment here. Um before we talk about some upcoming releases that Northwestern University Press has, I want to really talk to you about Neckbone, A.V.R. Young's amazing, 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 amazing book. When we talked at his book release party, I was like, you know, I don't want to say it out loud, especially to him. But I'm, I'm immediately thrown into that world of thinking about Olio by Tiamba Jess and about how that book, how Olio really grabbed people just by the jugular and 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 it was a look at me moment for poets right Mm -hmm. neckbone for me does a similar thing when avery brought you that transcript (laughs) did you say "Uh oh (laughs) this this is mad different than what what northwestern press normally would do or 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 were you pretty confident that you'd be able to let that vision play out the way that avery presented it because i know how he gets down so how did, sure. how did that work out? Well, you know, the thing about it is, I mean, I, it was one of those things because I've known Avery for a long time. And so, you know, we're now in a time, especially in the poetry world, where visuals and poetry are being more and more played on the same canvas. And, you know, especially looking at somebody like Tyamba Jess, who also, I mean, Olio is a brilliant a brilliant work, and he's a brilliant poet who's been working very hard for a very long time at his work. And I, I actually sat in on a, um, he taught a master's class at Cave Canem um, about writing that book and just kind of to, to hear how his mind was working to put this together. It, it, it's sort of in the same vein as Avery because I've always known that Avery sees poetry as visuals and music first, and then the words kind of um, feel their way through what he's envisioned. And part of that has to do with because he is an educator, he teaches young people a lot about their own voices, their own narratives. And the way to do that, especially with very, very young people, is to get them to see the visual first. So I've always known Avery to be a visual poet, um, a, a musical poet. So I wasn't necessarily surprised about what he was going to be sending me. Right. But when I got it, I said, I've never seen anything like this before. I've never seen anyone interpret it in such um, a multidimensional way like this before. I've seen art and poetry before. I've seen many different things in terms of music. And he actually sent me just some of his music ahead of time as well. And so I kind of got this full scope. And then... It was my job to kind of dream with him what this was going to actually look like once it was bound, because he's so used to seeing his work on the walls or in the headphones. And so now I had to, it was my job to actually think about what is this going to be when it's sitting in somebody like 
opens the binding of that book. So the first thing I actually did do was um, I sent it to Taryn Page, mm-hmm. and I asked him, because I know that Terrence, the brilliant writer he is, he's also a brilliant visual artist, and, you know, he got back to me immediately, and he was just like, I don't even know what this is, but whatever it is, you have to publish this, like, yesterday. Hmm. So that's the part where, you know, once I kind of had and talked to parents about it a little bit, and he wrote this just beautiful, you know, this beautiful narrative of what he saw in the book, that's the part where if you have to defend yourself, I knew I had the right people aligned to defend doing something like this, especially at a university press. But I'm very grateful and I'm very lucky because a lot of the people that are here on staff are people who like to think out of the box. And so this was something that everybody was actually extremely excited about. This was, I didn't really have a lot of detractors from this project. It was just like, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it so that it is in direct conversation with Avery's mind? and how he wants to move about in the world with this book in his hands. So that was really more of the conversation that we had. But I didn't really have anybody that that um, was going to put up a, a fight with me about the book, and they wouldn't have won anyway. Yeah, as as you have just mentioned, um, you can hear in the background there is a uh, traditional third Friday festivity occurring here at the 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 Co Prosperity Sphere. It seems like every Friday is a day to to bop off here at at the Co Prosperity Sphere, but today it's very special and very culturally relevant to me. Um, I consider myself a a Luthian um, in Chicago, and that means we celebrate Third Friday. Today, uh, August sixteenth. Yeah, it's it's um, it's kind of uh, it's it's. I think the Luthians are unique in the sense that they actually um, celebrate Third Friday on Third Friday. Yes, correct? it's a very literal translation of the word Third Friday. Uh, fundamentalist, perhaps. Sure. I mean, you know, I'm not one of those uptight Luthians. You know, I'm mm-hmm. more of a. I'm more of a free-thinking Luthian. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a utility. I'm a utilit. I'm a unitarian Luthian. Okay, yeah. It's hard to say because I'm just so free-thinking. Well, but for the benefit of the listener that maybe is not, um, for whatever reason, listening in Chicago, uh, sure. what is Third Friday? Third Friday is um, is a night to appreciate art. Um, it's when the first painting was was made in in Chicago city limits. Uh, when the inaugural painting of what would be, what would be considered the, the Sears Tower, it was it was it was drafted in uh, watercolors on a on a on a sheepskin canvas um, in eight in, in eighteen uh, eighteen forty two. Well, I mean, it was, so the story goes at so, least. So yeah, but it's it's unclear exactly. Um, and this was on a this was on a, a an ancient East Siders, uh, you know, night. That was translated, gone through tra- several translations by, you know, the populations, uh, the colonists coming, you know, into the city and taking over their land and their, and their Lake Michigan, uh, and it was translated eventually to Third Friday, and it, it's been thought for a very long time that Third Friday is called that because it happens on the third Friday of the month, and it wasn't until the sort of the. Uh, uh, a revolution of thought that took place just a decade ago, where in, when several factions and historians from Chicago started digging up this what I consider to be bunk, uh, bunk factual evidence to support Third Friday actually took place on you know the third Thursday of the month, and that it was just a loose translation based on you know lunar cycles and, and whatnot. As we know, the East Siders are you know moon moon worshippers uh, historically too. Uh, well, moon they they use moon. They use the lunar cycle. I think that it, they're more, um, you know, deep ocean worshippers, perhaps. But I suppose you've spent more time with them, so yeah. No, they're just they just worship that big old stone in the sky. Well, but the an- thing is that I'm I'm just right now I'm it's I can't even celebrate on such a historically important date for me on such a culturally important date for me. It's hard for me to get into the excitement 
uh, because I've been up covering every single faction of the Luthian, you know, uh, Luthian breaks in thought, um, every single faction's third Friday festival, which have been taking place basically all this week. I've been up night after night after night covering these festivals, and it's just exhausting. I've seen so much art. I can't even look at another painting. Are we doing yet? 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 The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>